Anger is such a unique emotion that many of us deal with, even if we don't realize we're dealing with it. We're going to unpack that today. If you have your Bibles, you're to Matthew chapter 5. So we continue our Masterclass series. As you're turning there, a quick reminder that we are in the process of, of nominating a new candidate for eldership, which is Johnny Flurry. You have two weeks to kind of give some feedback on him. You can do that by texting the word elder to that number or emailing hello uh, at wearechapel.org. Lots of good stuff going on. Another thing I want to unpack is we are part of the Radiant Network. The staff and I are, are going to travel to our Rise Shine conference this week. So we'll be in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. But they have launched, they've had the Radiant School of Ministry and the Radiant School of Worship for the last two years, and now they're making some extension campus possibilities possible for the local churches. So we're going to be one of those pilot churches, and so this fall we're going to start the Radiant School of Ministry. So you see that there, you say, what is that? That's if anybody who's interested in maybe being called to full-time ministry or maybe going deeper into your ministry gifts or leadership, that is for you. It'll happen one day a week on Thursday nights where there'll be some video type instructions some prayer, some internship possibilities and some things like that. So if you're interested in that at all, you can text that word radiant to 256-670-2860. And we're excited to see what God is going to do through that. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, it says this. It says, you heard, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everybody say, but I say. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You know, it's interesting. People say, well, Jesus didn't really talk about hell at all. And in literally the very first sermon he preached, he talks about hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and Go. That tells me God cares more about your relationships than he does your offering. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, you be, and be, you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the very last penny. Like, this is crazy. So there's a transition happening in this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, then he talks about the law, and now he starts to do his commentary on the law. And he starts talking about some of the commandments, whether it's adultery, whether it's anger or murder, whether it's whatever it may be, and he starts unpacking what he really means by that. And he starts with murder, which is interesting to me that he would start with murder. I don't know if there's like a, a big crime spree going on at the Sermon on the Mount where he's trying to get them to stop just killing each other. But he literally starts with murder. And murder is nothing more than trying to remove someone who's a threat to you or what you want to do. And so he's trying to bring some reconciliation because he knows at some point he's going to combine the Jews and the Gentiles together and they hated each other. So if he's ever going to have unity, he has to deal with the heart of the matter, which is not just murder, but is anger. And as he begins with anger, he's really referring to the sixth commandment, which is thou shall not murder. Touch your neighbor and say, you better not murder this weekend. Right? Like, it, it, it's not that big of a, like, most of us don't wake up this morning and be like, God, please give me the grace to not kill somebody today. Now, if you have four teenagers, that it may be your prayer. Or if you're a teacher or what, like, but most of us don't deal with that. And the sixth commandment is saying, thou shall not murder. That doesn't mean you know, war or capital punishment means taking innocent life for your own personal benefit, what it actually means. He's saying, thou shalt not murder. But in the sixth commandment, it has nothing to do with anger. 
Like, it, it doesn't have anything to do with anger. It doesn't mean to say that, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not get angry. Thou shalt not murder is like the surface level, and Jesus says something different. He says, not only thou shalt not murder, but thou shalt not be angry. Like, he takes it to a totally different place, and he says it like this. He says, maybe you heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart, you already started the process. So he takes it from the, the service level to the other level. He's also starting to help us realize that the kingdom of God is countercultural to what the world is. He's saying, the world may say, just don't murder and you'll be okay. But I say your heart is more important than what you do with your hands. He takes it to another level. You could say it like this. You may have heard it said by CNN, Fox News, or Disney, or YouTube, but I say this. You may have heard it said by your political figures you follow, but I say. You may have heard it said by your teacher at school, your professor at your liberal university, but I say. You may have heard it said by your friends or your peer group, but I say. You may have heard it said by even your pastor, but I say. You may have even heard it said by your mamas in them, but I say. He, he changed it. See, the world says one thing, but the kingdom says something else. And they were saying, well, the law says as long as I don't murder somebody, I'm good. Jesus says, no, no, you, you missed it. This kingdom is not one about the hands and the feet. This is one of the heart. And that you're so worried about the outside judgment, the, the temporary judgment, the physical judgment, that you lose sight that there's an eternal, internal judgment. See, they could have thought, the, the Pharisees actually thought, that as long as I don't kill somebody, I can call them names. I can say what I want to say about them. I can defame their character. I can call them a fool, he says in here, which means ruash, which means you're nothing, you're empty to me. He's saying, you may think that as long as you get away with it, it's okay. But I'm here to tell you, there is an eternal, internal judgment to the kingdom. And I think for us in this day and age, we may not murder people physically, but we murder people with our words. We murder people with our thoughts. We murder people with our heart. We try to get them to no longer exist. You can call that cancel culture is nothing more than murdering somebody's reputation. So we may not have the murder with our hands, but much like the Pharisees, we think as long as I don't kill them, I'm good. And Jesus takes it another way. He says, no, this isn't about outward obedience. This is about internal, inner surrender. Inner surrender. See, as long as my heart is surrendered to Jesus, I don't have to worry about if I'm going to kill somebody today. If my heart is surrendered to Jesus, I don't have to worry about having an affair today. If my heart is surrendered to Jesus, I don't have to worry about a lot of the Ten Commandments today. I don't have to worry about idolatry and, and making engraving images. I don't have to worry about stealing. Why? Because my heart is surrendered to the King and my heart is in His hands. And so Jesus immediately takes it from this physical expression of outrage to this internal expression of surrender. And He says it, in a way that takes it to the heart. You saw in that video that so many people deal with anger. We may not call it anger. We may call it frustration. We may call it, you know, I'm, I'm a little temperamental or, you know, that's kind of my personality. But Jesus says there's something deeper going on inside of us. And until we process what's going on deeper inside of us, it doesn't matter what commandments we're trying to force everybody to, to live by. Because this internal kingdom inside of me is more important than the external kingdom. And it's like this. Where is your anger coming from and where is it taking you? Where is your anger coming from and where is it taking you? 
See, I, I think one of the things that we've detrimented, my, myself included, the Western churches, we've been so focused on intellectual knowledge, Bible studies, scripture memorization, all these amazing things that are needed. We've so focused on the mind, we've detrimented the heart. And so many, there's so many, that's why we can have these Christians who know the scriptures, who know the word, who, who know how to act like the Christians, who are religious, but they're really pious and mean and angry. Like, I'm not going to say it, but our daughter Alicia who is in college, she went to church for Easter, went to a different church because her church was, was too big. She's going by herself and she was anxious. And she went to a church and she sat down, a 19-year-old, at the time 18-year-old little girl, at, at college by herself, at school for, by herself, going to church by herself. She sits down and some, I'm sure, great, amazing person with some incredible scriptures memorized tells her, get up, that's my seat. Right? And the people that are laughing are the ones that don't do that. Everybody else is like, we're not supposed to do that? Like, <laughs> right? This lady who's angry says, why, you can, you can have the external things correctly, but sometimes we detriment the church because we don't process the internal hurts and pains and fears and insecurities and shame and all these things on the inside of us that we can cover with church clothes, we can cover with religion, we can cover all this stuff, but at some point it seeps out. At some point, it'll seep out into your family. At some point, it'll seep out into your marriage. At some point, it'll seep out at your job. Some, at some point, and Jesus is talking about, listen, the murder is not the problem. It's what's going on in the inside of your heart that's all polluted with pains from your mom and dad and, and shame from when you were a teenager and guilt from your failures as an adult and your shame. All these things are inside of us, and they're, they're moving around. And in Christianity, we just tell people, just go to church, sing a little bit, study the Bible, and you're good. And Jesus here at the center of the mountain is saying, no, no, we need to get to some inside stuff. Like there's some internal stuff that's just as important. That's why we're so big on, on Christian counseling and therapy here because it doesn't matter if, I, if you memorize the entire Bible. But if you're so wounded on the inside that you're angry at God, you're angry at your spouse, you're angry at your kids, you're angry at the person who turned left at Taco Bell and there's not even a turning lane there, like you're angry at Nick Saban, you're angry at everybody, but you know the Bible. Like you know how to give an offering, you, you know how to do all the stuff, but your heart is so broken that you rage at any moment somebody touches the wounds of your heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about in the scripture. So where is your anger coming from and where could it be? taking you. Because when you're feeling angry, something is going on deeper inside of you. Right? You're not angry at your spouse because she didn't clean the house correctly. You're not angry at your kids because they didn't do their homework. You're not angry. There's something inside of us that's deeper, that the anger is a symptom of what's deeper inside of us. And sometimes anger, anger is this emotion that God likes to use for the righteous side to bring positive change. But the enemy likes to use to bring negative change. And so when you understand anger has this twofold purpose, it'll change the way. So righteous anger is a response to sin, the mistreatment of others, or an attack on the kingdom of God. So righteous anger is when God is not getting his way and you're upset because God is not getting his way or his kingdom is not advancing. And if we we're honest, most of us, if we were to make a list of the last month we got angry, 
very rarely was it because God wasn't getting his way. Most time it's because we're not getting our way. And so righteous anger is when God is not getting his way. The greatest example, people say, well, Jesus got angry when he went into the temple and started flipping the tables over and whipping people and, and moving them out. Jesus got angry. Yes, he did, and it was a righteous anger. Well, how do you know that? One, in the Greek, that word that he got angry was not an outburst. It was deliberate and intentional to fulfill God's will and purpose for that time. It wasn't just like he lost his temper. Secondly, the reason Jesus got angry is very important. So we think, well, yeah, he, he flipped over the tables because they were selling stuff in the church, and, and we shouldn't sell books, we shouldn't sell paintings, we shouldn't sell. That is not, when you went to the temple, it was part of the law for them to sell stuff to people because they couldn't bring their sacrifices from 100 miles away and expect it to survive and be unblemished in order to make a sacrifice. So they would sell their animal at their homeland, bring the money, have to exchange the money for temple currency in order to make an offering of sacrifice of praise. Being brought up in Israel, there's actually a street right next to the, to the temple where they actually sold all the offerings and the sacrifices. So this is a common thing. So Jesus had seen this his whole time. So why would he get mad about them selling stuff when he sent it his entire life and it was part of the purpose of the temple? Well, he says that he says, my house shall not be a den of thieves, but shall be a house of prayer. But for what? All nations. So he wasn't just mad they were selling stuff. He's saying, this is not the purpose of my house. My house is for all nations. So to give you the context of why Jesus was angry is that if you went to the temple, if this was the temple, the elders would sit up front. The Jewish elders would sit here. Then the Jewish men, the Jewish women and children had to sit in the very back. That was the process for worship in the synagogue or the temple. Elders, men, women, and children in the back. If you were a Gentile, you were not allowed on the inside of the temple. If you were a Gentile, non-Jewish person, non-Hebrew, you had to sit on the outside. That's why they called the outer courts the courts of the Gentiles. That was the only place that they could come and worship and pray. That was the only place, that was as close as they could get to the presence of God. And it's with that place, instead of selling it on the temple grounds, they're selling it right there in the outer courts or the court of Gentiles. So you have these Gentile believers who are already going against the grain. They're going against their foreign religions. They're going against secular culture. They're going against traditions. And they're trying to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And while they're praying and others are worshiping, these salespeople were selling stuff right there. Could you imagine if you're in here praying and somebody came right next to you and tried to sell you popcorn or Coca-Cola or try to sell you books while you're worshiping and you're praying? It's disrupting the relationship with the Father. And the reason they're disrupting the relationship with the Father is because they didn't think the Gentiles were worthy to be worshiping anyway. So when Jesus gets mad and says, my house shall not be a den of thieves, but a house of prayer for all nations, he's saying, I'm angry because you're a bunch of racists up in here. And he begins flipping tables over, whipping people. Why? God is a God who fights for unity and integrity and for people. And he begins to get angry and he pours. So when righteous anger stems up, it always seeks to help God get his way and to make people better. But unrighteous anger is the opposite. Unrighteous anger says this. Unrighteous anger typically occurs when our anger is caused by fear, shame, or an attack to our own 
pride. It seeks to get its own way. It seeks to have control. It seeks to move things forward. It seeks to have what I want, what I desire, what I want right now. And so they're different because righteous anger uses anger as a tool, not a weapon. It uses anger as a tool to to bring the civil rights movement, to, to fight against abortion, to fight against sinfulness, to fight against things that attack God's character. It it fights for something. But unrighteous anger uses anger as a weapon, not a tool. It uses a weapon to hurt other people, to despise other people, to push other people down, to lift up ourselves and to push everybody else down. And the stem of it is this, hurt people hurt people. And so I'm hurt And so when I get angry, I'm going to use my anger as a way to hurt you because it makes me feel better if you hurt like I hurt. That's why when unrighteous anger is flowing, that's why marriages get destroyed. That's why relationships get disrupted. That's why you're disillusioned with God's will because when you're angry with unrighteous anger, you can't see God. All you see is yourself. All you see is what you want, what you need, what you have to have, what you desire, what you need. All these things. All you see is yourself, and you're blinded by selfish anger. And so the problem with it is sometimes righteous anger and unrighteous anger can kind of get polluted and mixed up together. And so many times we will try to say it's righteous anger when it's really coming from a place of brokenness. Like I'll be very honest. I think a lot a lot of what we see right now in culture, whether it's on the news, whether it's in pop culture, whether it's politics, whatever it's the protest movement, all the stuff going on right now, we claim it's righteous anger because it may have a righteous cause. But deep down inside, it comes from a place of unrighteousness. And we try to compensate by being righteous, righteous protesters, righteous causes. But deep down inside, it's really just a way to push other people down to make ourselves feel stronger and bigger than they are. And so there's four, I believe, root causes of unrighteous anger. And I want to share those with you real quick. One is this, insecurity and fear. So when you have insecurity and fear in your heart, it produces an unrighteous anger. And the reason for that is it's, we've had lifestyles of rejection, whether as you was a kid, maybe your dad or your mom left you, you felt rejected, now you feel insecure. Maybe it's because uh, you're afraid of loss, you're afraid of failure, you're afraid of mistakes, you're afraid of your past catching up with you. And we become like these runaways. Where runaways are nothing more where you're trying to run away from who you are because you're afraid of who you are, you're insecure. Or you try to hide yourself underneath a false image. Has anybody ever been around a story topper? You know what a story topper is? Where you tell a story, but all of a sudden their story's better. You could tell a Forrest Gump story. I was on Forrest Gump could tell the best story ever, and this person would be like, "Well, see, yeah, I, I saved five million people in Vietnam. Hey, I played football, and they just lie and lie and lie. What they're doing is showing they're insecure. They're insecure of who they truly are, so they're putting up this facade, this fakeness, this." This fake reality upon themselves. And we do this with our church clothes. Ask you, man, how you doing, brother? Man, I'm good. And I saw you in the Hard Times newspaper. Right? And so, so all this stuff is going on the inside, but you're trying to make people believe you're fine on the outside. And then once people start to see the real you, you get so afraid, you get angry. 
You get angry that people will see the real you because you're so ashamed and insecure of the real you, you're trying to protect this fake image and you fight back to push people away. And that false self or that insecurity is what drives that anger to push people away or push them down. It's like a caged animal. If you have been around a caged animal, if you try to get to the caged animal, they'll fight back. I heard a story about a rattlesnake that if a rattlesnake, if it's caged and you try to get to it and it gets farther back into the corner, it'll actually start striking itself out of fear. And when I read that, my question was, how many believers out of fear they're finally going to have to be authentic or real? How many believers out of fear of their insecurities becoming public actually start to strike themselves with the venom of anger and hatred? We could call it self-hatred. We could call it self-hate. We could call it insecurity. We could call it failure. But it's that insecurity and that shame that's driving that anger or to pride and control. Pride and control is, is as soon as a baby is born, we start letting them have their way. Like you think you bring your baby home from the hospital. If it cries, it throws a fit, you give it a bottle. If it throws a fit again, you give it a pacifier. If it throws a fit, you put it in the bed with you. And the baby gets its way. And then it becomes the terrible twos. You try to stop, start to break that little wild stallion, and they rise up as the terrible twos. Then the four and five, they're at Walmart. They throw a fit. They start arguing. You buy them what they want. They become teenagers. They throw a fit. You buy them what they want. They become adults, and now they're protesting because the government doesn't give them what they want. Like, it's in us that we think the world revolves around us. That's pride. And when you have pride, you think you're supposed to be the one to control everything around you because it protects your pride, it protects your throne. And so when you're proud, you get angry when you start to lose control. People that I've dealt with in counseling or even in church world, when they are angry people, they all have control issues. And they're angry because they can't control their wife. They're angry because they can't control their kids. And normally they're angry because they can't control themselves. And it's this control feature that as soon as we start at some point live life in a way where you run out of control, anger and tantrums and tempers start piling up. That's why we have 30, 40, 50-year-old men who are throwing tantrums because they can't get their way. What's crazy is you see in the Bible, Saul, anointed king, anointed king, as soon as he starts to lose a little bit of control. Now, this is Saul. The people of Israel wanted a king. God gives him Saul. He's the most handsome man, the tallest man in all of Israel. He's a great warrior. He's a great leader. He's a great king. But as soon as he gets afraid about losing control, David, who's been serving him, been loving him, playing the heart for him to release his demons, as soon as he loses control, he starts throwing spears at David. So what can make a man who has a son-in-law who he loves like his own son, who's best friends with his son Jonathan, who's heir apparent, who's helping him in every way, do whatever he needs to do, serving him unconditionally, what makes a man throw spears at somebody like that? Control issues. It's crazy. As there's a, in Greek mythology, Zeus is known as the lightning bolt thrower, that as soon as he loses control, he starts throwing lightning bolts. So Zeus is throwing lightning bolts and Saul is throwing spears. The question would be, what are we throwing? 
When you start losing control, are we throwing insults? Are we throwing guilt? Are we throwing pain? Are we throwing our frustrations? Are we throwing our fears? Are we throwing things? Are we throwing household goods? Like, what are we throwing? When we lose control, what do we begin to throw? And then three, blame and shame. Blame and shame. When you start to feel like blame is coming your way, you begin to fight back, or the shame of your past comes, and I would call it open wounds. Like, we start to get angry when unhealed wounds get touched. I remember a story. This guy was like one of the big word of faith guys, positive thinkers, positive speakers. And he said he got healed at this crusade, this televangelist was there. He got healed and he came back to his college, university. They asked him, he said, yeah, I got healed. But he was still hurting. And they said, well, if you got healed, why are you still hurting? He said, well, the symptoms are still there. So you got healed, but the symptoms... And, made me think, like, as Christians, we say we got healed, but all the symptoms are still there. You got healed of a wounded heart, but all the symptoms, the anger, the bitterness, the jealousy, the frustration is still there. You got healed of unforgiveness, but the symptoms of unforgiveness are still there. It's the open wounds. Once they, somebody spots them and touches them, they may not know they're touching them. Maybe somebody says something to you that it brings back a wound from when you were a child. Like, I'm not going to lie, like, I'm being completely transparent. Like, my household was full of alcohol and drugs and all types of evils in my household. And, like, most of my memories of a childhood come from the smell of alcohol. When I smell alcohol, it actually begins to bring back memories of my past. And so I have to work hard to make sure my heart is healed of those because when I was younger, if it got touched, I would like to fight. And I'd like to say I was a fighter. I'd like to say I won more fights than I lost, but I'd be lying to you. At the halftime, I was six foot three, 160, 75 pounds, and I took my whoopings with pride. And most of my fights were not for righteous causes. Most of my fights weren't because, you know, I, I needed to. Most of my fights were because somebody touched a wound of rejection that had not been healed yet. Or somebody touched a wound of failure or shame that hadn't been healed yet. And the saddest part about it is in marriages, most of us know our spouse's open wounds. And when we get frustrated or we begin to fight, the first thing we do is touch the open wound. And then tempers begin to flare and things begin to spiral out of control because our natural response to pain is to fight. Our natural response to internal pain is to be angry. And when the blame and shame of our past catches up with us, if we don't process those wounds, it will come back. See, blame is easy, anger is easy, but internally we have to process those wounds with Jesus to heal them, to stop this cycle. Number four, and the last one, is frustration and stress. Frustration and stress. James 4, 1 and 2 says this, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? So literally James is asking the question, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, everybody say desire. You want something, but you don't have it, so you murder. You covet something, you want it, and cannot attain it, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What he's saying is you are so frustrated because you want something, but you don't have it. And that's what we call a gap. Whenever there's a gap between expectations and reality, frustration fills that gap. So I want something, but I don't have it, frustration fills that gap. I have an expectation of my wife, but the reality is here, frustration 
fills that gap. I have an expectation from my husband, but here's the reality. Expectation or frustration fills the gap. And whenever there's frustration, anger is very close nearby. So in premarital counseling, 90% of my time, I'm working on trying to create proper expectations. You ask the husband, what are your expectations of yourself? Well, I expect to go to work, come home, turn on the TV, my wife to cook me dinner, bring it to me, make sure the house is clean, and this is done, and this is done, and this is done, this is done. I'm like, bro, like, no. What's your expectations of a wife? Well, I expect him to help me with this, help me with the laundry, help me with the dishes, help me with that, help me with this. And so they have two expectations. And so if they don't have the proper expectations, they get married. He's sitting on the couch starving to death. And she's in the kitchen waiting for him to come help. So now there's frustration in between the expectation and the reality. And the problem with frustration, it can happen at work. You have expectations of your boss, but there's a reality. You have expectations of your kids, but there's a reality. Whenever those two things are opposite each other, frustration always fills the gap. And all of us only have a certain level of frustration we can handle. And when your frustration or your stress meter starts to get hot, anger begins to stir within your heart. It, you see with Moses, Moses in Numbers 20, the, one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. Moses, who leads the people, he battles Pharaoh with nothing but a staff in his hand. He delivers the Hebrews out of Egypt without throwing a single punch, crosses the Red Sea, he's in the wilderness, and all of a sudden he starts dealing with frustration. Why? Well, he expected that this journey would take about 10 days, not 40 years. He expected these people to be grateful for the fact this man led them out of slavery into freedom, but they ain't grateful. He expected these people to obey him and follow him, not complain and whine every step of the journey. And so they run out of water. God tells them, speak to the rock. He's so mad, he strikes the rock with his staff, Water comes out. He's relieved because these people are shut up. But now God says, now you can't enter into the promised land. See, in moments of frustration, in moments of frustration, you can throw a temper tantrum and get your way momentarily, but you forfeit some things in the future. Whether it's in your marriage, it, you may feel better after you say it. But long term, you're going to forfeit some things in your future. With your kids, it may feel better in the moment to say what you wanted to say, but you may forfeit some things in the future. At your job, you may feel good when you're angry. Whatever it may be, in the driving through at McDonald's or somebody cuts you off in traffic, you may feel good to yell and scream at them, but long term, you may forfeit something in the future. And so where is your anger coming from, and where is it taking you? For Moses, it came from this area of frustration, and it took him away from the promise God had given him. So where is your anger taking you personally? And how can you manage it? Well, Jesus not only shows us, he tells us, hey, if you have an offering and you have ought with your brother, leave your offering there, go deal with your brother, then come back. The whole point of the scripture is not to not kill people, it's reconciliation. It's how can I deal with this anger inside my heart in a way that produces a positive result for everybody involved? And so Jesus gives us the, the steps for anger management. So right now you're at anger management 101 with Jesus himself. Number one is this. If we don't find our validation through Christ, we will find it through invalidating others. 
If you don't find your validation, your approval, your affirmation, your identity, your value in Jesus, you will find it in invalidating other people. That is why we live in this culture where we try to destroy people with our words. It's because people have lost all sense of value and identity and self-worth in Jesus, so we try to find it by devaluing other people. This is why I believe baptism, like last Sunday, is so important. But Jesus begins his ministry, not just with baptism, but the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Before he ever accomplished anything, he was validated by his Father. He found value in his Father. He found confirmation and affirmation in his Father. So when he leaves and begins his ministry and people reject him, That's cool. You can reject me all you want to. I don't have to fight back. He approves of me. When people start to talk bad about him, he goes to his hometown, and they can't even believe, well, this is just Joseph's son, the carpenter's son. This ain't no no prophet or Messiah. We don't care. Jesus said, okay, that's fine. I'll heal a few people, and I'll go on. Why? He doesn't need to fight. He doesn't need to invalidate anybody else. He's already validated. And until you're validated by the Father, you're always going to try to invalidate other people. Two. Is think before you speak. Don't react in anger. Respond in love. Think before you speak. When your anger's getting stirred, think. Could you imagine Jesus is sitting in town. These elders, these leaders bring the woman caught in the act of adultery. They throw her down. The law says she was caught in the very act of adultery. She should be stoned. Now, Jesus could be angry that she broke one of the Ten Commandments. He could be angry as put him in a predicament. He could be angry that these people are putting him in this spot. He could be angry, but Jesus pauses. Now, this is the wisest man the world has ever seen. He knew the right things to say. He knew what not to say. But Jesus paused and began to write in the sand. And as the situation calmed down, then he began to speak. He said, hey, where, where are your accusers? She's like, I don't know, they left. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Some of us need to learn the art of doodling in the sand. Like, could you imagine what that would save you in your marriage? Could you imagine what that could save you with your kids? Could you imagine what that could save you at your job? Just the art of doodling. Somebody says something, they eat you and you just, hold on, hold on. I got my Etch-a-Sketch, hold on, I'm about to... There's something to it because don't allow an angry moment to destroy a lifetime of love. Right? How many of us, we will allow an angry moment to destroy? Nine times out of ten, I promise you, every past, pastor on staff here will tell you the same thing. Nine times out of ten that a couple's having marriage problems, it's not their current situation. It's something that's said about a past situation. They let an angry moment, they said something knowing it would hurt them, but thinking it was temporary, and words aren't temporary, they are eternal. And so if we would just think about something for a minute, suppress the anger, and then respond. We don't have to react to every single threat. I don't have to react to every single social media post. I don't have to react to every single news cycle. I don't react. I get to respond with the grace and truth and love of Jesus. If I just slow down and think about it. Number three, going to that, is if you get angry, call a time out, calm down, and think and pray. If your temper is one of those, the Gorleys are angry group. 
My daddy was angry. My grandfather's angry. My, grand, my mama was angry. My brother's angry. My brother, we're playing church league softball about 15 years ago now, and, and there was a double play. I'm on first base. Somebody hits it to shortstop. I'm running towards second. I'm not trying to break up the double play. I'm trying to get to the outside of the bag so I don't run over the, the second baseman or shortstop. And I run the outside. The ball pulls him across the bag. We hit. Boom. Right? I mean, collide. So as a man, if you get hurt, your first response isn't to cry. It isn't to ask for help. It is anger. And I was like, and he's mouthed off to me. He said something crazy, and I was like, dude, shut your mouth. And our whole team was like, pastor just told that dude to shut up. Like, and I'm just like, so I'm embarrassed. My brother comes out of the dugout with his tattoos. He's, he's thicker than I am. He comes out with baseball bats like, what, you want some, boy? I'm like, bro, dude, chill out. So then back in the dugout, everybody's like, oh, our pastor's the baddest dude. He's trying to fight everybody. And I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. So I go to the guy, and I was like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I should not have gotten angry at you. I shouldn't have responded that way. And he says, I don't accept your apology. I was like, really? So the other guy on his team was like, hey, man, he's a jerk. Just don't worry about it. Da, da. So then my brother heard that. My brother's like, no, he's getting up the game. Like, hold on. Right? So in the heat of battle, sometimes the best thing you can do is just simply call a timeout. If you watch a basketball game, when the, the momentum swings the other way or the emotions get too emotional, they just call a timeout. In football, when things get chaotic, they just call a timeout. Call a timeout, think and pray. Or in Psalms, it's called Selah. Selah just means take an intermission. Take a break. I remember my dad, again, the Gorleys were an angry group. My dad, he gotten saved. I just got out of the Air Force. I was working with my dad. We're, he's an electrician. We're building this big middle school. And, and my, my dad kind of had a reputation of being the enforcer on job sites. And so we had a bunch of young guys that worked with us that were just a bunch of young punks and Something happened. I'm looking for my dad. I'm like, hey, where, has somebody seen Bobby Joe? Anybody seen Bobby Joe? Like, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him. So I'm looking all over for this job site, all over for him. And I walk past his electrical room, and I was like, what in the world? Here's my dad in his little electrical closet. There's wires all over the place. There's sparks going off. And my dad's just walking around like this. And I was like, Dad, are, are you okay? <laughs> He's just, that little punk, that little punk. And so my dad, who... He's been angry for 45 years and just gotten saved. This kid cussed him out, and my dad, instead of breaking him off, went into this, clo- this electric closet and began to pray. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm like, happy. I'm like, dude, come along. You would have just broke me off, Dad. This guy gets grace. I wish you had been saved when I was growing up. <laughs> what he did was, it got hot. He just called a time out. And for maybe you, maybe you're the type where, you're a little more emotional. You're more temperamental. Maybe just a timeout. Is, your wife starts nagging, timeout. Your husband starts running his mouth, timeout. Fourthly, don't let anger control you. Address it in love and release it in a godly way. Internal anger will come out. The more you suppress it, the worse it gets. And so you have to find a way. Jesus says, listen, if you're at the altar and you're worshiping, you're about to make a sacrifice, and you know there's an issue, leave it there and go address it in love. Because if you keep trying to cover it up with your religion and just keep pushing it down, at some point we're all going to feel the rage. Did you know there's a proper way to handle everything godly? Maybe that could be, hey, can I just meet you for, for lunch? Hey, what you said about me, that really hurt me. 
And I'm not accusing thing. I just say, man, I'm sorry. And if I did anything, I'm sorry, I forgive you. Like you have to release. For some of you, maybe it's a walk. It's proven that physical exercise releases the chemicals of anger in our body. So maybe if you get angry, maybe just going for a walk or to go exercise. Maybe for you, it's putting your head in a pillow and screaming to the top of your lungs. But you have to release it in a godly way or it will come out in an ungodly way. Then finally, choose forgiveness and healing instead of hurt and revenge. Choose forgiveness and healing instead of hurt and revenge. That man, you know, this is obviously a story Jesus is telling, but the guy who's at the altar, he could have stayed at the altar, suppressed his anger, and walked away just as angry, just as vengeful, and just as hateful as he was before he made a sacrifice. And Jesus models this for us. When he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they've done. Like he was releasing that. See, Jesus knew he's going to rise again. Jesus could have been like, give it three days, bro. Give it three days. Like he's coming back on a white horse. He's coming back to come. He could have said, you know what? All y'all, when I come back, it's you. He didn't. He chose, even in his most broken moment, his weakest moment, to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they've done. We all have the choice to either release forgiveness and healing. When this man left the altar and reconciled, he brought healing to both of them. See, that's the problem with forgiveness. We don't realize many times forgiveness brings healing. Not just for you, but for all the parties involved. But we're so busy, we want revenge and pain. We want them to feel what we feel. And as long as you do that, that wound will stay open. And as soon as anybody else touches it, they're going to feel it. And the sad thing about it is this. The people that cause the wound aren't the ones we rage at. Could have been your ex-spouse, could have been your mama, your daddy, your grandparents, somebody who hurt you long years ago. That wound is still there, and when your kids touch it, your kids feel the wrath of you. And that is not fair. And the only reason that happens is because you choose pain and vengeance instead of forgiveness and healing. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just real quick. It's got two questions. One is extremely personal. And I think Jesus hit it right here in Matthew 5, 21 to 26. But he said, if you're at the altar and you feel like you have alt with your brother, your brother has alt with you, leave your gift at the altar, go and reconcile in love and then come back. Which tells me in the American church, we'd much rather have our altars full than our hearts healed. And I'm here to tell you as a pastor, I'd rather your heart be healed then you'd be at the altar making sacrifices of praise. That's how much it meant to Jesus. Jesus knows that the root cause of murder or hatred is this anger inside of us that comes from blame and shame or insecurity and fear or pride and control or frustration and stress. And Jesus doesn't just mention it. He provides a way to heal it. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll, I'll soften your heart of stone. I'll touch you. I can heal every wound in every place. And so maybe for you, maybe you, you deal with it. Maybe when somebody touches an open wound, you, you rise up. 
Maybe when things get out of control, you get angry trying to get control back. Maybe there's things that you're insecure about, and whenever it comes public or somebody recognizes it, all of a sudden you start to feel your heart rise up with adrenaline and anger. Or maybe there's a certain person who's done something to you that you keep holding on to, that today the day, well, as we're talking, that maybe God has placed their face in front of you or their name in front of you, and that today's the day you choose forgiveness and healing over hurt and vengeance. That you say, you know what, I, I realize this, I have anger in my heart from something. I don't, I don't need to know. You just need to acknowledge to Jesus that his Holy Spirit has pointed it out to you this morning and that you want to walk with him and submit to him and surrender to him internally so he can begin to heal the wounds in your heart. If that's you, I'm not going to have you stand up. There's a private moment, the one private moment of the entire day between you and God right now. If that's you, you say, you know what, I need God to touch me in my inner heart. If that's you, just slip your hand up. Thank you all over the room. You can put your hands down. Father, in Jesus' name. We thank you that, Father, even though the law says thou shalt not commit murder, you take it deeper. Not just set our hands free, but to set our hearts free. Father, anger, we live in such a day and age where anger is so commonplace, whether it's on news and commentary and TV. Father, whether it's in social media, it's, we've gotten so desensitized to anger. Father, it's even hard to spot the anger in our own heart. And so, Father, these people that raise their hands, I pray that you, the great heart surgeon, as they open up their mouths, they open up their minds, they open up their hearts to you, to internal surrender, that you begin to soften the hard places of the hearts. You begin to close up the wounds of the past. You begin to bring out the insecurities to validate them and confirm them and affirm them as your children that you're well pleased with. And allow them to release that anger, Father, so reconciliation can happen in their lives. Second question is this. Without, before we leave, you said, you know what? I'm here today, and the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit's been drawing me to Jesus. Maybe it's convicted of sin. Maybe that's, you know, you're needing a fresh start or a new beginning. That's all available in Jesus. As we follow Jesus, he makes us new again. As we follow Jesus, he gives us new purpose. As we follow Jesus, he gives us a fresh start and a new life. And he said, you know, that's me. Holy Spirit's been speaking to me. Now, I just want to make that step today. I'm not going to have you come forward. I just want you to slip your hand up real quick. Say, that's me. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm going to pray for those of you that raise your hand. But if you could do me a favor, when you leave, we want to help you the best way we can. If you leave, you just stop by Connection Point and say, hey, I prayed with Pastor. And let them give you a gift we have for you that's a really nice gift to help you on your journey as you follow it. Jesus, Father, we thank you for new life, new hope, new purpose, new promises. Father, we thank you above all for the blood of Jesus that washes us, that cleanses us, that makes us new again. And Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit drawing us to you. And I pray in this moment you seal this moment with your Holy Spirit as they confess with their mouth and they repent of their ways that you bring them into your kingdom and set their feet on the solid rock of Jesus. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.